Hello, my name is Sadie Drinkwood Herman, and I am here with my colleagues Aidan Donovan and Madison Peak. Welcome to our podcast, Europe in the World, where we explore issues related to development, humanitarianism, and crisis management within the EU. This podcast is under the direction of Dr. Kaya Shilda, Associate Professor of International Relations at BU's Party School of Global Studies, and Jean Monnet Chair in European Security and Defense from 2022 to 2024. This episode's special guest is Stefan Lena, whose research focuses on the EU's foreign policy and member state relations. We hope you enjoy our discussion with Stefan as we dive deeper into the topic of crisis management in the EU. In preparation for this interview, we noticed that you retweeted Carnegie Europe's tweet that stated, it has been said that Europe would be built through crises. Is it fair to assume that you support this theoretical framework that Europe has built been built through crises. And could you elaborate on your perception of this? Certainly. Basically, there are two ways for the EU to develop. Uh, The one is through treaty change and the other one by responding to crisis. In the first five decades of the European Union, it was mainly through treaty change. Altogether, there were five major treaty reforms that turned the EU into what it is today. But since uh, 2009, when the Lisbon Treaty entered into force, there has been no more treaty change. Uh, And uh, during this period, uh, the EU has been basically constantly in crisis. Since 2009, the financial crisis, then the migration crisis, then um, Trump, then Brexit, uh, then uh, um, the COVID crisis, and now we are facing Russia and the energy crisis. So during this period, the EU has developed very dynamically, uh, changed its entire financial architecture uh, in in the financial crisis. It developed much stronger institutions to deal with the external border, to secure the external border. In COVID, we had a common vaccination uh, program. Uh, We also have now the reconstruction fund, which doubles the money at the disposal for the EU for the next four years. So altogether, a lot of change uh, without treaty change. And I think if you look ahead, the next few years will be also crisis years. There is no question about it. And I believe during this period, it's more likely that, again, the EU will change and develop by responding to challenges uh, rather than having big conferences on treaty change. Right. And going along with that, do you believe that EU member states come out of crises with a newfound solidarity and more prepared for the next event? And if so, can you provide with a couple examples that? Sure. Well, uh, you know, the, you know, in particular in the English speaking press, uh, whenever there is a big crisis, they write that's the beginning of the end of the European Union, basically, because many people still think this is some sort of a unnatural experiment that is bound to break up at one point. Uh, but uh, in the EU bubble itself, uh, you have the opposite approach. There are people who believe EU comes uh, comes out strengthened from any kind of crisis. I think both views are wrong. The EU is a lot more resilient than uh, the doomsayers believe because it's built on very strong economic interests. But at the same time, it's not true that it becomes stronger with every crisis. Otherwise, it would be in fantastic shape because there have been so many crises in the last 10 years. 
Some crises strengthen the EU. Uh, I mentioned the financial crisis, where a lot of things has happened to make the monetary union more robust, or COVID with the reconstruction fund, or the vaccination program. But there are other crises that are really divisive. The migration crisis, for instance, um, it's very, very difficult to manage, and we still have no new asylum policy that replaces the broken Dublin arrangement, uh, and that de facto weakened the EU and uh, created a lot more, uh, well, uh, support for populist movements and uh, divisions. And I think the crisis right now, the energy crisis, could well turn out like the migration crisis. We have very diverse interests in the EU. Some are dependent on Russia, others not. Some uh, rely on nuclear energy, others uh, want to go to renewables very quickly. So it remains to be seen. But again, always when there is a big asymmetry, you know, some people are are affected by crisis, others not at all, then it's much more difficult to unite uh, on common policies. So um, I think uh, crises sometimes create new, new opportunities for the EU to become stronger, but other crises are really divisive and weaken the EU. Yeah, so building off of that, um, I have a question about identity. So with your focus on the EU and its member state relations, can there or is there already a shared common European identity? Um, if that is the case, if you believe that's the case, uh, what are the boundaries and characteristics that define this identity? Well, I think most people these days have multiple identity. You feel as part of a town, a part of a region, a part of a nation, uh, sometimes also of a bigger community, basically. So it's not mutually exclusive. And uh, there was a study done in 2020 in the EU, which indicated that uh, I think 56%, the majority of Europeans, feel some kind of European identity. But uh, of course, the strongest uh, identity is still the national ones. Uh, Seventy-three percent of Europeans feel that they are part of a nation. So uh, these things can coexist. Um, uh, the European identity is uh, something that uh, is not manufactured by anyone. It's not created consciously. It, it's something that, that is experienced. I think the common currency plays a role. Uh, uh, the Erasmus uh, student exchange program in which uh, many thousand people every year participate is an important factor. Uh, cheap flights are very bad for the climate, but they bring people together and also establish some kind of European identity. So it's still not overwhelmingly strong. There are still uh, quite a number of people, uh, about 14 percent who say not at all. They don't feel European at all. But the majority of Europeans have the sense that they belong to something larger than their nation state. So thank you for that great response. And that leads into our next question that, do you think that formation of identity comes from these crises that we have discussed here today? Or is it sort of forcefully manufactured by the EU organizations? Well, as I said, definitely not organized by the EU institutions who as such don't play a big role in the formation of identity, something that's experienced by people traveling, by people using the currency, by people feeling somehow related to uh, people from other nations uh, that are part of the same community. Uh, and uh, it 
to some extent, it can be strengthened by the common experience of crisis. But on the other hand, it can also be weakened by negative experience of crisis. Uh, if there is a big fight between member states, for instance, between the North and the South during the financial crisis, uh, this weakens the common identity. Then the Italians get very angry at the Germans uh, and the Dutch are very frustrated with the Greeks. Uh, and that, of course, means that they have less of a common identity at this point. So it can go either way. It's not something that is stable and uh, established forever. It, it goes through uh, different types of developments. Right. And pivoting a little bit, but still on crises. Um, conversations like in this era of common crises, specifically the ones you mentioned, the Eurozone crisis and the migration crisis and then COVID as well. Do you think that the new treaties by the EU will be more effective in dealing with the said crises? Or do you think amending current legal texts in treaties is a more feasible option? Well, I think historically, uh, there's not much difference because all the big treaties were actually list of amendments to the existing text. There is one overall uh, overreaching EU treaty that gets amended. I think at the present time, uh, it's not a coincidence that since uh, the signing of the Lisbon Treaty in 2007, there has been no new serious efforts to, to start a new treaty change uh, process, because this is a very complicated process. It has sort of a double lock. It requires an agreement among all the 27 governments and also the ratification of the uh, treaty by all 27 parliaments. And uh, in some cases, it also requires a referendum of the people. Uh, and this has become very very hard to do in a, in a union of 27 countries that are very diver diverse and very um, different from each other. So I think uh, governments are very scared of such a process because it can easily get wrong. Because if you don't have this full agreement, this ratification by everyone, then this is a crisis. This is a big step backwards. So I think um, I, there is now a strong initiative by the European Parliament to start the process of treaty change again. They call for a convention uh, that needs to be uh, called uh, by the European Council. But in the discussion among the member states, it's clear that there is uh, many, many countries just don't want this. They feel there's too much already going on and all the attention is required by managing uh, the Russian attack on, on Ukraine, uh, by managing the energy crisis. So nobody has the energy basically to focus on, on, on such a rather abstract matter like treaty change. Also, I think it's not very popular. I think many European citizens can't understand what uh, is at stake and find it too complicated and too remote somehow to relate to it. So that it's not a popular thing to call a, a convention, basically. So I think it's unlikely to happen. That's interesting. But do you think that um, new treaties are a requirement for reinstating the legitimacy of the EU or not? Well, I think in theory it would be a good thing. I think there is uh, uh, there can be a few changes that uh, would make a lot of sense. One is transnationalists in the European Parliament. Right now, you only vote for 
nationalists, uh, and that would open up a public European space that would make a lot of sense. You can also imagine electing the president of the commission through a popular vote. Why not? Uh, there are certain things that can help strengthening the legitimacy. But I, I think at the moment, they seem to be too difficult to do. I think we have two governments in particular, Hungary and Poland, that are very EU skeptical. They don't want to leave the EU, but they believe in a very loose Europe, an intergovernmental Europe, where the member states remain sovereign to the maximum extent, and they would never go for such steps. And, and their agreement would be needed. So uh, it doesn't make much sense to call for a convention if you know <laughs> it's very limited what will be uh, possible to as an outcome. So I, I think uh, while in theory, I believe treaty change would be a, a nice thing, could be very helpful. I just don't be, believe it's very likely to come about. I think the Lisbon Treaty is unlikely to remain the final treaty of the European Union. At one point, uh, a convention will come, treaty change will come. But at the present moment, I think the majority of governments uh, doesn't, don't believe that this is a priority. Okay, um, we're going to keep focus on crises, but I'm going to shift it over to foreign policy aspects. Right. Um, so the EU's foreign policy agenda has changed within the last decade or so. Um, for example, we've seen increased hostilities with Russia, uh, an increased threat of terrorism, increased scrutiny of migrants, just saying a couple of them. Um, can you comment on what the future of EU foreign policy would be in relation to these issues? Um, do you expect any common trends to rise? Anything like that? Well, altogether, I think the European foreign policy is um, the weakest link of the Euro uh, European integration in general. I think it's not a common foreign policy, it's sort of a parallel foreign policy, because the member states maintain their own national foreign policies, and when they agree on something, then there is sort of a European policy in parallel to that. Um, it's still based on unanimity, which makes it very easy for one country to block everything. Uh, and it's just not, <laughs> it's, it's not very impressive as, as, a, as a machine. Uh, and I think it's not very likely to become a lot more strong. Uh, going forward, because uh, I think the big countries, namely uh, France and Germany, to some extent also Italy and Spain, will not give up their own sovereign foreign policy. And uh, some of the smaller countries are also not ready to uh, accept the risks and the costs of a more operational common foreign policy. So it will not, it will remain something relatively underdeveloped if you compare it with the common currency or the, the the Schengen system. Uh, but there is one very, very important dimension of uh, international relations where the EU is very strong. Uh, and this is sort of geoeconomics, basically. The EU is the biggest trading power in the world. It is the biggest uh, source of uh, development assistance, biggest source of humanitarian aid. And it's by far the biggest exporter of norms and standards. This is called the Brussels effect, simply because it controls the access to such a huge market of 450 million people. It can really set... Uh, the standards for all sorts of uh, important things, uh, production of goods, but also services. Um, they hold in the digital sphere, it's much more influential than, than Washington because Washington is deadlocked uh, in Congress and can't agree on anything. So, so 
I, I think in these aspects, the EU is very strong and, and I think will continue to be strong. And this is its real asset in terms of international relations, not classical foreign policy or defense, uh, where I think NATO in Europe is by far the more important uh, organization, but it is this kind of economic relationships where, where the EU is very strong and plays a leading role. Also regarding climate change, incidentally, because that's, of course, closely related to all that. Thank you for that. And so our final question for you today is, what common key elements do you think others need to know in order to understand in order to have a basic understanding of the EU's actions in relation to Russia's war on Ukraine? Well, I think it's good to take note of the fact that the EU has always been divided when it comes to Russia. There have been the countries of the former Soviet empire who have been extremely skeptical and critical for the last decades, basically. But there have been other countries like Italy, Greece, Austria, um, to some extent also Germany, who uh, placed a great value in good relations with Russia, basically, and, and had a lot of trade going on and a lot of um, basically positive um, uh, relationships. Now, when... Uh, the, when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, this was a huge shock. This was unexpected. And in a way, the shock united the EU because what Putin did was so unjustified and so crazy, basically, that uh, even the greatest uh, supporters of a good relationship with Russia fell into line and accepted that this was something that the EU could not accept. And therefore, the EU was able to uh, decide on very important uh, assistance for Ukraine, economic assistance, but also for the first time ever military assistance. A lot of weapons are bought with EU funding. Uh, they decided on, I think by now, it's seven packages of sanctions against Russia, quite important ones. Uh, and, and so you had a very great unity, basically, uh, in, in confronting Russia on this issue. I think the more, the, the longer the war continues, the more fragile, basically, this uh, unanimity and this consensus gets because the collateral damage of the war in terms of inflation, in terms of energy crisis, in terms of uh, it becomes higher and, and you begin seeing signs of, of, of a certain split, uh, for I, particularly when it comes to what an acceptable outcome of the war would be. I think that if you ask the Baltic states or the Poles or the Swedes, they say Russia has to be defeated. But if you ask Italians and, and Spanish people and Austrians, they would say, well, let's have a ceasefire tomorrow <laughs> because they, their prime, primacy, their priority is to bring this to an end. So I think it will uh, increasingly take a lot of leadership uh, to keep uh, all the 27 together on this issue. And of course, uh, Putin is doing what he can to drive them apart. But at the same time, uh, still his action is so uh, unacceptable that I think he's still more uniting than a dividing force uh, as far as the EU position is concerned. And I must say also uh, the U.S. plays a big role. I think the U.S. on this issue uh, had very strong leadership and worked very, very closely with the EU institutions uh, and helped a lot to keep the whole thing together.
Well, thank you for that answer. And with that, it actually is going to conclude all of the questions that we have for you today. So thank you for meeting with us and taking place in our podcast series. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Very good questions. Bye-bye. Bye. Have a good day. Thank you.